We've been looking all semester long at the book of John, and if you're new with us, we have said over and over again that John is writing that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the one sent from God, not, not another guy, but that this one, that this Jesus is the one sent from God so that we might have life and have life in His name, that we might rejoice, and that we might know Him, and that our, our hearts might be encouraged. And so, Tonight, we're going to listen to what he has to say here from the 14th chapter of John. And I just think that uh, before we start going tonight, I want, to see that you, I want you to see that Jesus is beginning now to tell his closest followers of his departure, that he will leave them, that the time is coming for him to leave. So tonight, that really is front and center about what we're looking at. Also, I need to mention this tonight. I'm relying heavily on the work of other people tonight. I do that every week, but tonight... Especially, I'm relying on the work of two people that I recommend to you to read their stuff. If you have an opportunity, a pastor out of New York City named Tim Keller. Also a pastor out of England. His name is Tom Wright. He has some very, very helpful stuff on the top work topic we're going to look at. And I've relied heavily on there. That's just a disclaimer that we uh, preacher teachers need to get in the habit of doing. But let me, let me start here by saying this. Um, I have, have you guys ever seen like the Matt Foley thing on Saturday Night Live? I've got what doctors call, okay, anyways, anyways, I have what doctors call a little bit of a control freak problem. Um, I don't know about you, but let me it, let you into my marriage for just a little bit. Um, every night, our, after we eat dinner, and it's sort of like routine as to who's going to clean up and everything, I have three kids, and Laura, my wife, usually takes them and gets them ready for bed. So she's doing bath, brushing teeth you know, stories and the whole nine yards. And then I'm the one that's responsible for uh, cleaning up the kitchen, wiping down the table, putting the, the dishes away in the dishwasher. And, and, and it's the, the everyday routine of me putting those dishes in the dishwasher after a day of, you know, of Laura living there with, with three kids. Um, I am convinced that there really are two types of people in this world, two types of people. One, there are people who put dishes into the dishwasher however the heck they feel like they want to, okay? And then there are people who end up coming behind those people and cleaning up the dishwasher and organizing it afterwards. Now, listen, my wife is the former and I am the latter. I am the one that comes in afterwards and like, why is this plate here? It needs to be right over here. And every night, it's a, it's a ritual where I get to say to my wife, hey, did you forget about what we talked about earlier. Yeah, I know I have problems, y'all. I know this is me. This has nothing to do with my wife, okay? I've got control. I, was, I got a little bit of a control freak problem here. And what this means is, is I don't like being out of, I don't like being, I, I want things to go my way. I don't like being out of control. I like life to be manageable. I want, I don't like, I don't like surprises in that sense. I mean, I like surprises, but the surprises better be manageable to me at the time that that surprise is revealed. And the thing is, is that if it's not like that, I tend, I tend to deny or to move away from certain things because of greater risk associated in life. Does that make sense? But surely in a room this size, I really probably am the only person that struggles with something like this, right? Surely none of y'all, nobody ever has any sort of problems like this at all, right? Well, think about it. What about you, right? What about you? Where do you see this thing playing out in your life? Think about it like this. How many of y'all worry about your future? I think all of us do. How many of us worry about the future because we can't control it? You see, you can't control it. And so we try, in other words, to be prepared, to be as prepared as possible 
to minimize our risk and to minimize our exposure. Or, or we worry about being alone. Some of y'all really worry about that. You worry about being alone in life. So, so because you can't really control other people, you manipulate them, right? And you do so with your words. Some of you use your bodies to do that. Other people will use your talents and your stuff to get them to stick around. Think about this as well. Think about how much of your motivation for school is driven by control. Right? Here's what I mean. You're not really studying statistics because you're interested in it. Okay, I admit, that might be a little bit weird anyways, but you get the point, right? But you do it because you think, man, if I don't do well on this, my future is sort of uncertain. And so I have to manage my grades in this moment so that I can minimize my exposure for later uncertainty in life. Here's the point, y'all. The more uncertain, the more out of our hands something is, the higher the degree we try to be prepared for that thing. We spend the vast majority of our lives being prepared for life's greatest uncertainties, don't we? Let me say this again. The more uncertain a thing is, the more we like to be prepared for a negative outcome about that, out, about that uncertainty. In other words, we want the most preparedness with the things that are most uncertain. And if we flip it, the things that are most certain, the things that we can account for the most, they don't surprise us. You see, there's a confidence, right? When a weatherman says or a weatherwoman says there's a 100% chance of rain tomorrow, you with confidence can put your rain boots on, walk out the door with your umbrella. You've minimized your risk, right? Because you know about it. Now listen, I would like to suggest to you tonight that this text is revealing to us a massive, massive irony. And here's what it is. It's huge. It's there in the disciples' lives, and it's in ours too. And here it is. Listen up. There is something absolutely certain, something certain, not uncertain, something certain, something rock solid that the disciples are not prepared for. It is not uncertain at all. It will happen to them, and it will happen to every single one of us. In fact, I can tell you this tonight. Without fail, I can tell you it tonight. I will say that it will happen to you. You can bank on it. And what is it? It is this, that you will die. Death. That is the, it's often said that death and taxes are the only certain things in life. You can avoid taxes. You will not avoid death. It, is, it will come to you. So we're talking about a very sobering topic tonight. And here's the irony, right? The irony is that we spend all of our life preparing for life's great uncertainties. And most of us, if we're honest, find, we find ourselves unprepared for the greatest certainty. Do you catch that? All of us. It's, so this text is going to force us to deal with that tonight. Listen to what one writer, uh, philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, once wrote. Listen to what he says. Not a Christian by any means. Listen to what he writes. Everyone wants to be foremost in this future. We're talking about in life. And yet, death and the stillness of death are the only things certain and common to all in this future. What he's saying is everybody's going to die. How strange that this soul thing that is certain and common to all exercises almost no influence on men. 
In other words, we don't live in light of it. We're not living with regard to it. We like to deny it. And y'all listen, I'm telling you, death cannot be dealt with. You cannot buy it off. You cannot, you cannot negotiate with it. It is a certain thing. And what this text is trying to show us tonight is that there is an unpreparedness that is often un- very, very troubling. You see, Jesus in this text tonight is about to leave his disciples. And they had no idea what was going to happen. And after that, Jesus would rise. Jesus would return to the Father. He would leave them again. And this, he knew, would leave them with some measure, as you see in verse 1, with troubled hearts. With troubled hearts. But the grace of the passage is this, that Jesus doesn't want their hearts, nor does he want our hearts, to be troubled. You see, so he takes it upon himself to untrouble them, to untrouble them. Jesus, with his words tonight, aims to calm our hearts in the face of the greatest certainty of all, death. And he does so tonight in two primary ways. One, with what he's going to do, what he goes to do, and secondly, with what he comes to bring. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at what Jesus goes to do and what he comes to bring and how that answers the question of how Jesus untroubles our hearts tonight. That's what we're going to look at. And I think this is very, very relevant for you because if you've ever been a part of anybody's suffering or anybody's pain or if you've ever lost a loved one, you've had to deal with death. You've had to. And the thing is, is the day is coming. I don't know if it will be tonight or if it will be 80 years from now. You're going to have to deal with yours. And the Bible is so awesome because it speaks frankly about the realities of life. It doesn't pull any punches. It, speak, it goes there, as it were. And tonight, Jesus is going to do that. So first of all, what do I mean by what he goes to do? We'll take a look there in these first three verses. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so... I would have told you that I go to would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and I will take you to myself. What is it that Jesus is going to do? Well, it says it right there that he's going to make a place for us. That he's going to make a home for us. This is if you have the old King James version, it literally says this is the language where we get there being mansions, right? It's this idea of home. It's this idea of home. Jesus is going to make that for us. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. You have to understand a little bit about ancient Near Eastern, um, basically, engagement rituals. So, yes, I mean engagement with marriage. Here's how it would work. A young male would, you know, find a suitable wife. He may not even know who she is across the village or whatever. And he would come to her and he would say something like this. He would say, you know, here's the, here's, I betrothed, I want to marry you in our, in our parlance. And then he would look at her and he would say, I got to go away because I got to go prepare a place for us. I've got to go prepare a place for us. And what he would do is, is he would go back to his father's house and he would literally build an extra room on that house that would prepare, prepare them to have a house to live together. You see, we say, what, you'd have to live with your parents? Uh, yes, that's exactly what happened. Because what happened was, in those cultures, families stuck together. They're not as individualized and Western as we are, and so that was a very normal thing. And so he would go and prepare a room for him, and people say, well, when's this thing going to be done? And he would literally have to say, only my father knows. Because it was the father's responsibility to make sure it was suitable for the woman that was coming. In other words, it couldn't be 
poorly done. It had to be done pristinely. And so it was held up to the father's standards. But then when everything was ready, guess what would happen? The bride, I mean, the groom would come and he would come with all of his friends and he would come and he would say, and they would say, the, the, the bridegroom is here to the bride. It's time to go. And they would go and they would consummate the marriage and then they would have a big old whopping party that lasted for a long time and that's what was happening. And see, when you understand that, you understand a little bit about what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make a home for you. You, my beloved. You, my bride. You, my people. Now this is something that's very interesting because I think what you have to see is that Jesus is very, very specific when he talks about the language of home. Now, most of us sort of think about, uh, well, I guess life after death, if I'm a Christian, looks something like this, that we probably just morph into like these genderless cherub fat babies, and we wear diapers to color our agenderedness, and then, um, and then we might sprout some wings and we play our favorite string instruments for all eternity. And that's really, really going to be awesome. Make me throw up, right? And here's the deal. Some of you may not think that, but some of you may think as well that the Christian vision, the Christian vision for life after death is floating on clouds or it's sort of this disembodied state. And let me tell you, that is not what Christianity teaches at all. Christianity teaches that God is making a place, a place for people. That, that the new heavens and the new earth, that the Christian storyline is a physical, is a physical existence. There is, when Jesus rose from the dead, what did he have? Anybody? He had a body, right? And right now he sits in a body enthroned in the heavens with Mark still in his hands and he is coming back one day. The most important thing I want you to understand though is this sense of home. What is home? Well, I think, home, I think all of us understand the concept of what home is. And that is what God is going, that's what Jesus is going to build and to create for us. I want to read you a little bit of a story. I often do this. This is story time from one of my favorite writers. It comes from one of the Narnia tales. It's the last battle. It's the last of the seven uh, chronicles of Narnia tales. And what has happened here, what I'm about to read to you, is that the characters have left old Narnia and have now entered in to new Narnia. That basically is a, a metaphor saying that, that heaven has come, that heaven and earth have been reunited and they're in this new world, as it were, and they're having a hard time assimilating and describing what that world is like. So that's, that's setting up what I'm about to read you. Just relax and listen to this. Just feast your ears upon what Lewis says. It is brilliant. He says this, It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay or the sea or a green valley that wound around among mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite to the window there may have been a looking glass, which is a mirror. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, there were somehow different. 
deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you have never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. Well, it was the unicorn, Jewel, who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forefoot on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, and I'll let you read with me. Nope, not that one. Here we go. I'll let you read with me. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. Lewis has captured this tear-jerking reality of what our existence is like and what Jesus is making for us now. You think you love life now? Listen to this. It's only because it's a foretaste of what's coming. The thing about living in this world life, whatever that is right now that you love about it, it's like looking in a mirror that when you turn behind it, when you pass through death, you see the real thing. How many of you, long, you hate, it's why we hate goodbyes. It's because you can't stand the fact of looking at somebody because you know you were never meant to say goodbye to anybody. It's why you can't stand death. It's why you see it as an intruder because you know that nobody was ever supposed to die. It's why when you go home after a week at college or wherever else and you rest, you go, ah, this just feels so good to be at home. Can you imagine that on a cosmic scale when you're allowed to kick your feet up with the best of your friends? You never have to say goodbye and you're warmed by a fire forever. That's the image that we're left with. That is home. And it is the promise that Jesus is going to make and He is making presently for you and me right now if you are in Him. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. Jesus gives us this wonderful promise. He says, I'm going to make a home for you to calm your heart, to untrouble you tonight. Because He wants you to know that there is something far better, something far more real, something far more homey than you've ever known. That's what I'm going to create. That's what I've gone to make, Jesus says. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. And I think it's one that we must deal with more uh, in our lives if we're ever going to understand what God is actually up to, where the whole story is pointing to in Christianity. But secondly, He doesn't just tell us what He's going to do. He also shows us what he's come, what He comes to bring. Did you see it right there in these verses 4 through 7? Jesus says this. He says, you know the way to where I am. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you do know him and have seen him. What is Jesus saying, y'all? He is saying that he has come to bring, are you ready for this? to bring His death for us. You see, what's happening in this story is, is Jesus is soon 
to die. He is soon to go to the cross. And what his death accomplishes, what that death does, is brought to us and is given to us. Why would this be so, so important? Well, think about it like this. For those of you familiar with the Old Testament, you might remember what we looked at Leviticus of last year, where we considered the image of the temple. And the temple had this massive curtain, right? And it represented behind it the very presence of God. And what Jesus has done, symbolically, is that He has gone into the temple. He has created now access to the Father. In other words, when Jesus died, Matthew tells us that that temple curtain was actually ripped in half. It went like like that from the top down as a way to symbolize that because of Jesus' death, we now have access to the Father on the basis of Jesus' work for us. Now that's huge because of this. You see, if you're not a Christian tonight or you're not sure what to make of Christianity, chances are that in your mind you think that what Christianity is all about is about me working, earning, and having to find my way to Jesus, find my way to God. That's what you think. What this text is telling us is saying, no, 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 no. Jesus did not come to show you the way. He did not come to point you to the way. The text says that Jesus is the way, that He is the one, He is the one in whom access is found. And what that means is, is that Jesus is the one that brings salvation to us. That salvation is a gift given. It is a gift given. And what that means is, is that you and I tonight, we are free to rest in Him. That you no longer have to worry. You no longer have to labor. That the home that Jesus is making, He is making for you and He is bringing it and giving you access to it. That He is the one giving you the pass, as it were because of what He has done, not because of what you have done. And that is huge, y'all, because, because so many of us think that the way that we access Christ, the way that we access God, is by us proving, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, you know, parading our own merit, and none of it works. You see, what that means then is that Christianity is utterly different, utterly different from any other religion in the world. All other religions virtually say this at their core. I performed so that I'm accepted. And Christianity says, you're accepted, now go perform, now go live. I'll say it another way. That God will accept me if I'm good enough. Another way of saying it is, no, Christianity is God accepts you and then He makes you good. That's how Christianity works and it's, it's different from every other religion in the world. Now though, this is very, very important because this raises a question that many, many people in our culture today have, and I think it's a good one worth raising, so I need to deal with it for a moment, and that is this. When Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except for me, I want you to think about that for a moment. That is a troubling, troubling statement on the lips of Jesus for our culture. Because what he is saying is, is that it's not as though I am an access point among many access points. He did not say I am one of many ways to the Father. He is being incredibly exclusive when he says I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now I need to unravel this a little bit because I think we need to deal with something. 
A lot of people in our culture will say, whoa, 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 everything you set up until now, that's really, really good and all, but mm -mm, this bit here, you see, don't we, is, aren't we, haven't we advanced far enough that we know that aren't there, aren't there multiple roads up the mountain? Y'all ever heard this illustration before? You see, isn't Christianity just one path up the mountain and that there are other paths up the mountain and other worldviews and other religions and aren't we all just kind of going to the same place? See, I think that's better for us to think of it because, see, you're going up the mountain, you're going up the path, you, don't, you can't see what else is there and the reality is, is that all of us have some bit of truth. All of us have truth areas that we don't have that other people do, so... Can't we just get along and say that all roads lead to the same path, that all roads lead to the same destination? I think that's a wonderful concern. It's one that needs to be dealt with, but I'd like to challenge, challenge it just a little bit in this next moment. What that, what that view of spiritual reality assumes is this. It assumes that, that you cannot, that nobody can have an exclusive view. Nobody can have an absolute view of spiritual truth. Nobody can have the entire vantage point. You see what I'm saying? Because that's what it's saying. Everybody's got part of it going up the road. Does that make sense? But here's where the illustration really breaks down. To be able to see every path going up the mountain and to be able to see every traveler on the mountain, what must you have? You must have an exclusive vantage point that sees all truth, which is the very thing that you are purporting that nobody can possibly have. Do you see that? The only way you can see all of the traps going up is if you have a vantage point that sees all of reality, which is the very thing that you're trying to say, if you're this person, that nobody can possibly have. What does that mean? It means then that it just it doesn't stand. It falls on its own premise. And therefore, we have to begin to ask the question, well, if that's the case, what, what do we do with that? And Jesus is saying, the access comes through me. The access comes through me. Now, let's, let's drive this home just a little bit in some and say this. Listen to what Dale Bruner, he's a professor, he says this. I love his quote. He says, it's a little bit long, but hang with me. The way, the truth, and the life are not three abstractions in John's gospel. They are a single person. This person, Jesus, is the wonderfully focusing, simplifying, and centering revelation of God Almighty. In Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, we have everything we human beings need in order to make sense of and give motivation for a life worth living. We are in a great debt. At the heart of Christianity, then, isn't man making his way to God. It is God making his way to and rescuing man. It isn't about morality. It's not about being good or bad. It's about rescuing people who aren't good enough. Jesus has prepared for us so we don't have to. He was exposed for us so that we don't have to be. Do you see that? Y'all, here's what else I want to show you. I actually think that because of this, in light of this, everything changes. Jesus is our calm. He was troubled that we might be able to face the greatest of all uncertainties, even our death. And when we are unprepared, unprepared for that, we can take great comfort in knowing that Jesus has prepared a place for us. In short, y'all, 
Jesus' trouble, His death on the cross, is our calm. Is our calm. Uh, there's, there's a singer-songwriter named Randy Carlisle. You may have heard of her. She has a song called The Eye. The Eye. And the hook on the song is, you can dance in a hurricane, pretty, pretty cute, but only if you're standing in the eye. You see, the image there is there's chaos all around, trouble all around, but right in the middle of that storm, right, right in the middle of the fury, right in the midst of the chaos, there's calm. And that's exactly what the death of Jesus is for us. That Jesus' trouble, Jesus' trouble is our calm. And I think that when you begin to see this, you are able to begin to face even the worst of circumstances, even your own death. Listen to what one writer from the early, early part of the, um, of the first, well, it's kind of the mid part of the second century. His, he had a weird name, and his name was Polycarp. I love that. Name your kids Polycarp. That'd be hilarious. But Polycarp was actually the bishop of a church in Smyrna. And uh, he was about 86 years old, and he was killed for his faith. He was a martyr. And one of the things that's so powerful about this is that the Roman proconsul, who was basically charging him with, with he, did not, he would not bow down and worship Caesar, he said this to him. He says, I have wild beasts, and I will throw them at you unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, call for them. Then the, then the, then the proconsul said again, I will have you consumed by fire since you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, You threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. And this is where the story takes over in his narrative where it reads this. They were about to nail him to the pyre that is that main stick in the fire. And he said, Leave me as I am, for he who enables me to endure the fire will also enable me to remain on the pyre without moving, even without the sense of security which you get from the nails. So they did not nail them, but tied them instead. And after praying, for this reason, indeed for all things I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ your Son, through whom to you with Him and the Holy Spirit be glory both now and for the ages to come. Amen. And when He said the Amen, they lit the fire and He soon died. Why do I share that story with you? Because I want you to begin to see what Polycarp saw. He saw that there was one on the backside of death that had prepared a place for him. And he was soon to enter it. And that same promise, y'all, is for you. I know you're 18 to 22 years old, but this is something you must begin to see as incredibly important. It gives us also, y'all, a vision for the rest of the campus that we're able to be people who live like this, people who flesh out comfort to one another, that can comfort one another with the very comfort that we have been comforted with as we get that from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Y'all, death is unnatural. Death is an intruder, to be sure. But for the Christian, death does not win. We have a king who has come and, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of it, gives himself up, gives his life up for you and for me. And this gives us an incredible acceptance with the Father. But he doesn't stay dead. He rose. And he is coming again. 
He is preparing home for us. And when you see Him doing this, you see His troubles calming you. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, could it be that this is why You have sent the Son to bring us home? To bring us home. No other story is like this, Lord. And it's ours. It's ours because of Jesus. Oh Lord, remind us that You do not want our hearts to be troubled in the midst of Your absence. You do not want our hearts to be troubled in the face of the greatest certainty that we will ever know. That is our undeath. The day is coming, yes, but it will be swift. And immediately, O Lord, You will bring us into Your presence. Lord, we need this today. Embolden us, we pray. Give us courage, we pray, to live. To know that You have loved us like this. And it is in Your name. Amen.